Good afternoon. So good to see so many of you today. Praise the Lord. What a joy. What a privilege to gather with God's people today. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn it to 1 Peter. And keep your Bibles open and follow along as we study God's word. Early in the 20th century, a young Welsh boy was sent away to boarding school, far away by his parents, in search of better education. Years later, the boy grew up to be a medical doctor and eventually became one of the most influential British evangelical preachers of the 20th century who ministered at Westminster Chapel in London for over 30 years. And one of my favorite preachers, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, reflects on his experience with these words. I must add that I suffered at that time from a sickness which has remained with me all along life's path. And that was hereath, a Welsh word for longing or homesickness. Hereath is an awful thing, as also is the feeling of loneliness, of being destitute and unhappy, which stem from it. It is difficult to define hereath, but to me it means the consciousness of a person being out of his home area, that which is dear to him. My three years at boarding school were very unhappy, and that was only because of this longing. I had bosom companions there, and I enjoyed the lessons, but I remember as if it was yesterday, sitting in church on a Sunday night when I had come home for the weekend, and suddenly being hit by the thought, this time tomorrow night, I shall be in my lodgings at school, and all at once, I would be down in the depths. Hereath, what a word. I discovered this word this week in preparation for this message, and I was so shocked and encouraged because this type of longing and homesickness is exactly what I struggled with growing up, similarly uh, being sent away from my family in Korea when I was seven years old. And I was describing this exact experience to a few brothers from church this very week, and I wish I had the word to clarify it. Hereath, it's as if that one word made sense of my entire adolescence and young adult life. An awful, destitute, unhappy feeling of loneliness, a sickness, a longing for home. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you've ever felt such sickness, a longing for home. I wonder if you've been ever confronted by hereath, because whether in strong or less intensity, every Christian experiences something analogous to what Lloyd-Jones describes, a longing for home. And if you have known such homesickness, hereath, you may be well acquainted with the spiritual constitution of the early readers of Peter's first letter. And the metaphor used to describe his audience in the first verse of our passage, the elect exiles of dispersion. It captures well the heart of the message in which the author of the letter Peter aims to address. In fact, one commentator notes, one could argue that everything in 1 Peter flows from the force of those three simple words, elect exiles of dispersion. So starting today and for the next nine weeks, we are beginning a new study through the epistle of 1 Peter in our sermon series, Hope in a Hostile World. So the questions we're asking are, how can Christians who face increasing hostility from the world around us persevere in our faith? 
How can believers, in light of the growing animosity, despite inevitable and increasing persecution, amid sorrows and afflictions, find hope and joy, find comfort and confidence in our faith? Well, in our passage this afternoon, Peter tells us how, doesn't he? Praise God. We are elect exiles of God. To give you some brief context, the first letter of Peter is written with a purpose to exhort Christians scattered all across northern Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And he encourages and exhorts them to stand firm in the faith despite the difficult situation challenging the faith and endurance of Christian believers at that time. Peter writes to remind his readers to see their new identity as a part of the great covenant people of God, connecting them both to the people of ancient Israel and also to the believers throughout the Roman Empire at the time Peter wrote the letter. Peter writes to explain why, as Christians, they will face persecution and will become the target of hostility and social harassment. Yet Peter assures them that their suffering has a purpose in Christ, that rather suffering for their faith confirms their identity as Christ followers. And as followers of Christ, seeking to conform more to be like Jesus, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, they shouldn't be surprised to receive the same opposition Christ did. Hence, Peter instructs and encourages readers to live faithful lives amid difficult circumstances, embracing suffering and testifying of God's mercy through it and proclaiming the good news of the gospel to a world that desperately needs to know Jesus. Well, that's 1 Peter in a nutshell. So in order to start us off in our study from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, in answering the question, why should Christians hope in a hostile world? I want to share with you four truths of what it means we are elect exiles. Four truths of what it means we are elect exiles. Here's the outline so you can follow. Point number one from verses 1 through 2. We are in the sovereign hands of God. We are in the sovereign hands of God. Point number two, we are heavenly citizens from verses three to five. We are heavenly citizens. Point number three, from verses six through nine, we will be tested. We will be tested. And point number four, from verses 10 through 12, we have a great salvation. We have a great salvation. So four points. We are in the sovereign hands of God. We are heavenly citizens. We will be tested and we have a great salvation. I pray for anyone experiencing hardships in this life as a result of your faith, as a result of being Christian, that you would find comfort and encouragement through these words. I pray for anyone doubting or questioning whether the suffering you have suffered or are currently experiencing for your faith have any holy purpose, that you would find great joy and hope knowing that the Spirit of God is at work in you. I pray that this word, that the heareth you are enduring, has an expiration date, that you will be reminded of that because Jesus is coming back and you are headed home. And I pray for anyone here who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we welcome you. Thank you so much for being here this afternoon, that you would see a glimpse of the beautiful salvation which is available to you if you would repent of your sin and trust in Jesus as God and King over your life. So without further ado, please turn to page 1014 in the blue Bibles near you. And let's read our text. First Peter chapter one, verses one through 12. It says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion 
in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by this Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Why should Christians hope in the midst of hostility? Point number one, we are in the sovereign hands of God. Verse one identifies the author of this letter as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That simple phrase clearly sets forth the letter's intention. Peter was one of the 12 of Jesus's original disciples, and Peter was well known for his famous confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, wasn't he? Yet Peter's impulsive and somewhat rash personality often had to be sharply rebuked and refined by Jesus. Do you recall Peter being called a Satan and a hindrance by Jesus when he tried to prevent Jesus's suffering in Matthew 16? Or do you recall at the transfiguration in Matthew 17, Peter saying, it is good for us to stay here and I'll build us some shelters. Do you recall Peter rejecting Jesus, washing his feet and, and then saying, wash me all over then. When he found out if Jesus doesn't wash his feet, then he would have no part with Jesus in John 13. Do you recall Peter cutting off the Roman soldier's ear on the night of Jesus's betrayal? John 18, 10. But perhaps the most memorable lesson Peter learned when he is warned by Jesus of his denial. And to Peter's great shame and remorse, Peter does deny Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. Nevertheless, Peter is restored by Jesus after his resurrection. Peter, by God's mercy, is utterly transformed by the resurrected Jesus. And then Peter would be established by Jesus as an apostle. Now, an apostle was a special yet limited office in the Bible. Apostles were the original 12 disciples of Jesus, chosen by Jesus with exceptions of Apostle Paul and possibly Matthias, who would replace Judas the betrayer. Apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, teaching his death and resurrection. And apostles were commissioned by Jesus with a specific authority to establish the foundation of the early church. Hence, when Peter introduces himself in the letter as an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
Peter meant to write with apostolic authority as a messenger of God. What he was saying were the very words of God. And so the words which would follow were not mere words of an old friend or an influential leader or pastor or merely good advice, but binding apostolic word from God. We see in verse 2 to whom the letter was written for, the audience, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, as I mentioned before, the three words in Greek, elect exiles of dispersion, carry significant meaning which undergird and support the weight and the force of the message of the letter. And we'll get more into the three words in just a minute. But the audience in which Peter was writing to were Jewish and Gentile Christians, mostly Gentile Christians scattered across various areas of Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey, which extends over 300,000 miles. And the names of the Roman provinces, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, were probably named in that order to describe the travel route in which the carrier traveled to deliver Peter's message. Now, why does Peter address his readers and hearers as elect exiles of dispersion? Because as far as we know, the dating of this letter, as most commentators agree, was before Nero's infamous persecution, wherein Nero intended to wipe out Christianity from the face of the earth by murdering millions of Christians, most centrally around AD 64 and 68, which ended Peter's life. This writing, the writing of this letter was before that. And so around the time Peter's letter was written, there wasn't any forced dwelling away from one's homeland as the word exile would convey, as Israelites uh, previously experienced under, for example, the Babylonian Empire. The Christians addressed by Peter were not barred from their native countries, if you will, in any kind of official, political, or punitive sense. Furthermore, some translations use the word exiles Uh, as strangers uses the word strangers for that word. And again, even this word does not sufficiently explicate the meaning of the original word because Christians addressed by Peter were not people who are not well-known, unknown by their neighbors. Hence, a better word which might capture the essence of the meaning of the word described may be sojourners or pilgrims or aliens, those who recognize that they are temporary residents living away from their homeland. And the word dispersion was a term used by Greek-speaking Jews to refer to Jewish people scattered throughout the nations dispersed from their homeland as referenced in John chapter 7, verse 35. But here, and in James chapter 1, verse 1, dispersion refers to Christians, not only Jewish Christians, but referring to all Christians, Jews and Gentiles, in a new spiritual sense, who are dispersed throughout the world, who are living as pilgrims, as those who long for their true homeland, as those who experience homesickness of hereath, away from their heavenly homeland. But we also see the most important of the three words, which I did not forget, the word elect. What does that mean? It's a word that's used uh, 22 times in the New Testament, always referring to a people chosen by God as recipients of great privilege and blessing. And Peter was bringing these significant words together, which had no previous association here for the first time in the New Testament. Peter introduces the phrase, elect exiles of dispersion. In other words, what he was referring to them was chosen pilgrims scattered throughout the world. 
And what he was doing was establishing a new identity as heavenly citizens to exhort and encourage them to hope and holiness and high praise to the heavenly father while sojourning in this hostile world. Peter says, this is who you are, elect exiles of dispersion, not by any other reason, not because of man's missteps, not because any political pressures or persecution, not because of any devil's diversions, but verse two, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father in the sanctification of the spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Now those prepositions according to in and for all modify that phrase, elect exiles of dispersion, which means Christians are chosen. Christians are sojourning, pilgriming, and Christians are scattered. Yet we are all united in God's sovereign purpose, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father. What that means is it was his sovereign plan from the very beginning of time that we would be chosen. In the sanctification of the spirit, we are a work in progress in whom the spirit of God is working in and through us for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood that we may conform more like Jesus in the once and for all his substitute death and by his continual daily washing of our souls from sin through his holy word. Did you notice how all of the Trinity our God three in one God, the father the Son and the Spirit are all working together to bear forth a new people for himself. Did you notice how God has been working in the past according to the foreknowledge, in the present, in the sanctification, in the future for the obedience and sprinkling? You see, our Trinitarian God holistically holds his people from beginning to end. The new creation people of God is not his backup plan or plan B at all. It's been his ultimate purpose all along. This is what Jesus meant in John chapter five, verse 17, when he said, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working, working for what, what is God and son and the spirit working together to accomplish? Hold that thought. Because for now, no matter what difficult circumstances you face, no matter what doubts or insecurities you may have regarding your self-worth and your identity, may this astounding truth blow your mind and astonish you today. We, the people of God, are in the sovereign hands of God. Amen? Be sure of this. God will not fail. Be sure of this. God will not leave us to fend for ourselves in this world. Peter reminds God's people, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May you experience grace upon grace upon grace as you trust him and look to him. May you know perfect and profound peace as you trust him as your Lord and Savior. Why? How? What did we do to deserve any of this? Which leads us to our next point. Why should we hope in this hostile world? Point number two, because we are heavenly citizens. We are heavenly citizens from verses three through five. Notice how Peter, at the mention of God's sovereign plan, what he has done in the past, present, and future, Peter breaks forth in praise, doesn't he? 
goodness, this whole passage is one long and complex run-on sentence, a glorious gospel presentation eliciting a crescendoing praise to the one who is worthy of our eternal worship. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is worthy. Why should we praise him? Why should we bless him? Why should we worship him today as God's people and every day? The rest of verse 3 says, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Brothers and sisters, just as God chose us according to his foreknowledge to be his people, he caused us to be born again to a living hope according to his great mercy. Amen? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were like lost sheep scattered everywhere. We were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Once we were not a people, once we had not received mercy, but now what are we? We are God's people. Now, according to his great mercy, we have been born again to a living hope. Now we are God's elect exiles. We are no longer citizens of this dark and dying world. We are citizens of heaven. We have the citizenship of Jesus's forever eternal kingdom. Hallelujah. I wonder if you understand what it means and how it feels to be granted citizenship to a country you have not been born into. I wonder if you know what it's like to live as an alien in a country where you do not hold the privileges or the benefits of that country. You can't drive a car. You can't get a license. You can't get any scholarships to schools. You pay double for your college tuition and it increases 20% every semester as an international student. You can't work. You are very limited in how you can make money. You can't receive health care benefits or social security. You are bound and limited because you are not a citizen of that country. I know so because even though I love my home country, South Korea, or at least what I remember of it since I left it at age seven, but you can imagine the excitement and exhilaration I felt when I became a citizen of the United States after 25 years in 2014, after living here in the States without privileges of this country as a foreign exchange student for all those years. You can bet I waved that tiny American flag they gave you for pictures like I was in the Olympics (laughs) representing my country. Because I understood the full meaning and implication of being rewarded citizenship. Brothers and sisters, do you understand? Do you truly understand we were not born as citizens of Jesus' kingdom? We rebelled against. We rejected against. We reviled God over and over and over again. We did not want to live under his rules. We ought to have been justly judged and justly condemned. Yet according to his great mercy, mercy means not getting what we deserve, namely God's wrath, our punishment for sin. Well, how did we receive such great mercy? How were we made citizens of the most amazing nation, kingdom, the kingdom of God? The end of verse three says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ It's the best news you will ever hear that the holy God who created all things in love created us for his glory and for our good. But man, having been tempted by Satan, chose to disobey God and distrust God's word and rebelled against his rule. 
Hence, man was eternally and justly condemned to death. God's wrath and the subsequent judgment of God in eternal hell separated from God forever, broken and hopeless and lost to ourselves. But God had foreknowledge from the very beginning for elect exiles dispersed to be gathered back as one, united as one people of God, back to God in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience of Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. This awesome salvation had nothing to do with us, but fully, fully, fully on who He is by Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, by His substitute life, His perfect sinless life as a ransom for us. By his substitute death, his death as our death, Jesus took our place as he sacrificed himself as the punishment for our sin. Jesus fully satisfied the eternal wrath of God reserved for us. And by his resurrection, Jesus Christ conquered and defeated sin, death, and Satan once and for all, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. But not only that, Verse 4 says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, unlike crypto or bitcoins or whatever people these days put their fortunes on, this stock will never decrease, never depreciate, or never disappear. Jesus is the one stock you can bet your life on. Hallelujah. It is certain. It is guaranteed. It is forever. How? Look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now understand this very carefully, lest you veer into heresy. What is the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you? Is it cash? Is it rewards? Is it riches? The better questions are who, how, and for what? Who? Us the elect exiles of God, the chosen people of God scattered abroad. How? By God's power through faith, God is working in us and through us to continually energize and sustain us through faith. You see, faith is the weapon and shield which is guarding us from the devastating effects of sin around us and in us. For what? What is God? Why is God preserving us and keeping us? For what? For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Yes, it's true. As born-again believers, we have been assured of our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that salvation will be fully realized. We will come to fully possess the full blessings of our redemption when we are united with Christ, you see, as one in the last day. When faith will turn to sight, when faith will turn to reality, oh, what a day that would be. Amen? Brothers and sisters, this is the hope that we have in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the hope that we hold fast to by God's power in our darkest days and in our griefs and sorrows. Salvation has come. Salvation is near. We are heavenly citizens. We are not made for this world. I love what Pastor David Helm says in his commentary. The remedy for humanity's hereath is found only in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's why the gospel is good news. It's the best news for humanity because it shatters death's looming grip. It reminds us we have true hope in the midst of a hostile world. So friend, if you are here this afternoon and you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, let me ask you these questions. What is your hope? What is your certainty that tonight 
or tomorrow or a few years from now, you will live and die in sin's bondage, that you will simply die and be forgotten, but more frighteningly, that you will face God's full eternal wrath because you rejected his salvation by rejecting his son. So dear friend, if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if the Spirit of God is speaking to you this afternoon, the Scripture says do not harden your hearts. Do not deny what is obvious. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person, the spiritually dead person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. Scripture also says in Romans 10.13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. According to verse 3 of our passage, it is only by God's great mercy we are born again. It is not your effort. It is not my effort. So I want to encourage you, friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ today, simply respond to God by surrendering to him. Repent of your sins today. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you this moment and trust in him, Christ, with your whole life as your Lord and Savior today and be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is unfading. Amen? Don't leave this place without talking to someone about how you can follow Jesus. I'll be standing at the back door at the close of service. Pastor Jeremy will be standing on the outside door or talk to someone smiling next to you who is eager to talk to you about how you can know and follow Jesus today. Brothers and sisters in Christ of NCBC, I was reminded that it is only by God's power our faith is kept and guarded. And every glimpse, every reminder, every desire to wake up another day to seek him to read his word, to trust him, to rely on him, to cast our cares on him, to come to church today and every Sunday to bless and encourage a fellow church member sacrificially again to serve, to grow, to worship. All those moments are evidence that God's power is working in you, sanctifying you for the obedience to Christ for a salvation ready to be revealed to you in the last time. Hope is alive in us today and will carry us to that day. But in this life, we will not be free of suffering and trials, which leads us to our next point, point number three. Why should we hope in a hostile world? We will be tested, verses six through nine. We will be tested, verses six through nine. Look at those verses. It says this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Lest you be caught off guard that the Christian life will be easy or problem-free, Peter reminds us, Peter reminds Christians of the reality of living as elect exiles to experience a pendulum of joys and sorrows in this life. It is normal, brothers and sisters, for Christians to experience griefs and hopes simultaneously. This is why the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4 through 10. Let me read it for you. It says this, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in affliction, hardship, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger by purity knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true as unknown and yet well-known as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed as sorrowful 
yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Peter, likewise, reminds Christians the reason why we can rejoice, even in the midst of affliction. So many reasons why, but here are five, very, very briefly. First, Because scripture commands us to rejoice. There are so many verses I can give you where the scripture explicitly commands believers to rejoice. Let me give you one. Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Second reason, because scripture reminds us that suffering and affliction will come. We will be tested, yet still rejoice. James chapter 1 verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of various kinds. Third, because suffering is a test for genuine faith. Suffering is a test for genuine faith. That's what verse 7 and 8 means, right? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, suffering will test whether your faith is genuine or not. Through affliction, and let me clarify, righteous affliction for being a Christian, not suffering as a result of your sins or dumb things we do, but through affliction, righteous suffering, we will come to know whether we and others are genuine Christians or not. And as one commentator says, trials are the proving ground for faith. Trials are the proving ground for faith. Fourth reason, through trials and sufferings, we come to know and appreciate the worth of our salvation, the worth of of our salvation. Peter is teaching us tested faith is more precious than gold. Let me repeat that again. Peter is teaching us tested faith is more precious than gold. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is teaching us we are not rich because we have cash or stocks or gold. We are rich. We are blessed. We are God's children because why? Because we have faith. Because we have faith. We have been gifted faith in Christ the most precious gift we can receive from God, the very gift in which God's power sustains and tests and keeps us to the end. Fifthly, through suffering, we come to know Christ sacrificed to a greater degree. We come to understand more deeply the meaning of Hebrews 12, 2 better, which says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, this is the reason for our crescendoing praise I was talking about earlier. This is what Peter means in verse 7 again. So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in what? Our joy? May be found to result in what? Our sense of accomplishment? No. It will result in the praise and glory and honor of Jesus at his revelation. What does that mean? Why don't we get a pat on the back? Why aren't we praised for enduring through trials to the end? Because praising Jesus, worshiping Jesus, giving glory and honor and praise to Jesus for all eternity is to be at home finally from our sickened and longing souls. To praise Jesus in all of his glory and beauty and majesty is to be where and what and the purpose for our creation, you see. We were made to worship Jesus. We were created to praise Jesus for all of our days. Let me illustrate what I mean. Jacob in scripture is one man who knew hereth, a longing for hope, didn't he? 
After listening to his mom's advice to deceive his father for his brother's birthright, he is forced to run away from home because his angry brother Esau is about to kill him. And his mother says something to him that always gets to me when I read it in Genesis 27:45. Stay with your uncle until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. But the story actually goes, Jacob's mom never sends for Jacob to bring him back home. And we see Jacob in Genesis 28, verse 11, cast away from home in the middle of a desert using a stone for a pillow. Jacob is a man who knew homesickness, you see. And that's why such an interesting reaction when he meets his future wife, Rachel, for the very first time. Have you ever read that account? In Genesis 29, 11, it says, Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. He just saw Rachel and started crying. Not exactly the reaction a man should have when you meet the girl of your dreams. <laughs> Weeping aloud, just messed up right there and then. But how I understand it is Jacob seeing and experiencing a little glimpse of home in Rachel. How he felt comforted and he is able to finally let his guard down and rest. In a similar way, verse 9 through 8 teaches us something interesting, yet makes so much sense, doesn't it? It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We've never seen Jesus face to face, yet we love him when we long for heaven. We've never been with Jesus in person, but believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. In other words, there are no words to describe and express why we are so happy when we are with Jesus and filled with glory, filled with hearts and songs and praise and adoration. Why? When we are in the presence of Jesus, why? Because we are at home, you see. Because we are where we are supposed to be with Jesus. This is what Song of Solomon means in chapter 6, verse 3. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He is our bridegroom. We are his bride. That is the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Little glimpses of home as we worship him in faith until we are one with him, home with him in heaven. Amen? Hope, faith, and love will carry us to the end. Fourth and finally, why we should hope in a hostile world. Verses 10 through 12, we have a great salvation. Look at verses 10 through 12 again. It says this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now there's so much more I can say uh, with the, in the, from these verses alone that can be a sermon on its own, but let me just emphasize the point. The salvation we know in Christ through faith, the salvation we experience in rejoicing through trials and afflictions, the salvation we will come to fully know at the last day when Jesus brings us home is the very plan of redemption of God that he has been working to reveal since the beginning of time. The salvation that we know, the salvation that we get a glimpse of, the salvation that we enjoy is indeed the very salvation that God has been working out for generations, that we may come to know it, enjoy it, 
hope in it, and later in the last days, experience it fully. Through the prophets of old and their careful searching and inquiring of the Old Testament scriptures, in their prophetic predictions of the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, meaning his death, resurrection, ascension, and return, so much of the Old Testament verses upon verses predicted the exact details, as you know, of Jesus' coming, his life, his birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return, and his eternal reign. All this, Peter says in verse 12, was revealed to them for the purpose that we would come to know this glorious gospel. All the preachers, of the generations past and present who preached the good news of Jesus by the Holy Spirit proclaimed it in order that the elect exiles of dispersion may come to know this glorious gospel for the salvation of our souls, brothers and sisters, for the perseverance of our faith, for the worship of his son, for his endless praise for all of eternity, for our heareth to be forever satisfied, for us to be home. This gospel, Peter says, are things into which angels long to look. The heavenly hope that we know, the tested faith that we know, the redeeming love that we know all by the mercies of God because we are the elect exiles of God. Brothers and sisters, may we not forget ever hope, faith, and love that we are in the sovereign hands of God, that we are heavenly citizens that we will be tested in faith for genuineness and for Christ's praise, and that we have a great and amazing, glorious salvation because of his mercy. Let's pray.